Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5. We're going to look at chapter 5, verse 11, through chapter 6, verse 3. And you can find it on page 1003 in the Pew Bibles. Now, I think it's pretty safe to assume that more than likely every person here, at one point or another in their life, has had a headache. Right? Is, can we safely conclude that everybody here has had a headache? And we all recognize that in one way or another, we have headaches for a variety of reasons, right? There's all sorts of factors that can contribute to why you have a headache, tension headaches, etc., whatever they might be. But how often when we find ourselves having a, in, in the midst of, of a headache, we've got this symptom, we've got this throb in, in our head, that we, we take the time to think about why we have that headache, don't we so often just go to the medicine cabinet and grab a pill, right? Take some ibuprofen. Just go ahead and, and get enough remedy to deal with the symptom, the headache, without ever thinking about why we had a headache in the first place or what caused us to do that. It's just so easy for us to get just enough of that remedy to cover over that symptom. Sometimes that headache might be the result of something serious. And we have no idea. Because we're so accustomed to just doing what we always do, right? We, we've got the symptom. We go for just enough of the remedy to cover over the symptom. Right? And be, but we don't discern it. And we've, we've got this simple remedy. And we treat it as such. And often we go through the Christian life in much the same way. We've got a symptom, perhaps it's trials and hardships, perhaps it's sin in our lives, perhaps it's just a, a recognition in some, some way that we are spiritually immature. And so what we do is we take just enough of the remedy of, of Jesus to cover over the symptom without ever really getting down to the cause, down to the disease. Maybe we acknowledge it generally, but, but not specifically, and so it keeps coming up. We've got these symptoms, and then we go find the remedy. Symptoms, remedy. And on and on it goes. Meanwhile, we fail to accurately diagnose the problem. Now, the book of Hebrews has repeatedly directed us to the remedy. Chapter 3, verse 1, consider Jesus. Chapter 4, verse 11, strive to enter God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 14, let us hold fast to our confession. Chapter 4, verse 16, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We felt the throb of the symptom. Right? Pay close attention to what we've heard lest we drift away from it. Chapter 2, verse 1, don't harden your heart as in the rebellion. Chapter 3, verse 8, take care lest you have an evil, unbelieving heart. Chapter 3, verse 12, fear lest any of us should fall, fail to enter that rest. Chapter 4, verse 11. And at a minimum, the symptom described throughout Hebrews and in our passage today is spiritual immaturity. But now, the author of Hebrews in our text this morning is going to diagnose the root problem. That there is a dullness of hearing. There's this apathy, this indifference, this laziness, and just lack of concern toward the deep truths and spiritual nourishment of God's Word. 
Another way of saying it is that there's no appetite. There's, there's no hunger for God's word or there's a greater hunger, a greater appetite for something other than the food which God supplies. And here's an example. Here's the taste test, right, that, that he gives us so that we can, we can kind of put this into practice so that we can put these feelers out there to, to recognize maybe some of the symptoms at least. It's there in chapter 5, verse 10, right? He says, Jesus was designated by God to be a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, honestly, how well does that set with you, right? How many of you, when you heard that, just kind of tuned out? Or, or maybe you kind of scratched your head and asked, what in the world? Or maybe you just went wah, 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 you know, and, and moved right on. I mean, that is the, the taste test to see whether or not we're hungry for God's word. I mean, that, that's like asking me if I want to delight in succulent, nutritious food and then handing me kale to eat, right? I just want to spit it back out. But yet, how did you respond when you hear that? I mean, do you kind of lean in and I want to know more? Or in your heart, did you say, so what? But the author of Hebrews is going to argue throughout another six chapters that that deep theological truth, that Jesus is a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, is a superior food that is essential for our maturity, for our mission, and for our moral uprightness. That's part of the remedy that we need to understand, not just to cover over the symptoms, but to deal with the root of the problem, this dullness of hearing. It gives us the remedy, feasting deeply on God's word, and it directs our hearts to the true source of our healing, the sovereign grace of God. And so what we're going to see this morning from Hebrews 5.11 through 6.3 is that dullness and immaturity are overcome by feasting on God's word in accordance with God's will. Dullness and immaturity are overcome by feasting on God's word and in accordance with God's will. Now for context, I want to begin reading in chapter 5, verse 5. So please look there with me. Says, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. About this, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those 
who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Dullness and immaturity are overcome by feasting on God's word in accordance with God's will. And as has been my practice, I'm just going to break that summary down into three parts. And so first, dullness and immaturity are overcome. Now, if I asked you, what is the problem? What is the diagnosis? What is the root cause behind the necessity of Jesus Christ and of faith in him? What would you say? Would you say something along the lines of, well, you know, the brokenness that exists in the world and, and in my heart? Perhaps at, at some level there's an acknowledgement that, that I've sinned against God and, and I need a Savior. These are good answers. These are important and essential answers. We've got to get this. But these answers actually describe the symptom rather than the disease. And depending on how big or how small these symptoms are in your eyes, the remedy, Jesus, will be just big enough to cover over those symptoms. And so if you have a headache because you're dehydrated, Jesus is a pill and a cup of cold water. But if your headache stems from having a brain tumor and Jesus is brain surgery, it's a much more serious matter, but, but you'll never know how deep the problem is until we look beyond the symptoms to gain a proper diagnosis. And so I go back to that question, what is the root cause for the necessity of Jesus Christ in a faith in him? Well, some might say, well, it's idolatry of heart. It's that we love, that we desire, that we go after other things before him. And that is much, much closer. But the author of Hebrews directs us just a little bit deeper than that. What is the root cause? What is the problem that necessitates finding our only remedy in Jesus? It's that we have become dull of hearing. Perhaps we don't hunger for, we don't want, we don't love, we don't earnestly seek to know and to hear from him. Perhaps we want the blessings that come from him, but we don't really want him. And so when God starts telling us of the deeper things from his word about how Jesus is this superior high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we tune out because we think it doesn't matter. We think it doesn't relate we think that as long as we show up, as long as we perform our religious obligations, then we're okay. And maybe, maybe we'll come and we'll, we'll choke down enough medicine, though we hate the taste of it, but the effect that that has on our hearts is that we don't really care for the cure. We want to be cured, but we don't love the cure. 
And that's a danger for all of us. When you came here this morning, did you come hungry? Did you prepare your heart to receive, to eat, to feed, to chew on, to digest? Of course, I mean hungry for more than, than cereal and oatmeal that Allie and company so generously provided us. Or, and I mean more than, oh, I, I forgot to eat breakfast, and so now I'm really eagerly looking forward to lunch. I mean a deep hunger for God's Word, a desire to feast upon it. Did you come here in earnest expectation to hear from God? Or is this a lifeless, dull, religious activity? Because if you're just going through the motions, then you're really no different than the original audience of this letter, who's trading Jesus for the signs and the symbols and the shadows, for the, the tools and the rituals that were meant to direct their hearts to feast upon him. For the original audience, <coughs> excuse me, they were trading Jesus for Judaism. And so the author starts to unpack throughout this letter how Jesus is better, how Jesus is superior to all of that, how all of that stuff was meant to point and direct our hearts to feed and hunger and thirst and be satisfied in him. And in chapter 4, verse 14, he starts to unpack how Jesus is, a, is superior to the priesthood. And he's going to spend six chapters on this theme. He actually spends longer on this theme of priesthood than he does on the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And so it matters. And he gets to this place where he's beginning to dive in. He's beginning to dig deep into God's word to show us how Jesus was designated by God to be this high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is essential stuff. You've got to get it. And then he has to stop. He stops right there in his tracks. And before he can go any further, he has to warn them. And he warns them with one of the warnings that honestly has struck fear into the heart of many, many, many Christians throughout the ages. This, this warning is like the boogeyman of all scripture for the heart of a Christian, right? He warns them that severely. This warning that we're going to spend two weeks looking at from this week and next week, Lord willing, chapter 5, verse 11 through chapter 6, verse 8. And he says, although about this, that Jesus is the superior high priest, we have much to say. There's so much goodness there to be savored, to be chewed on, to be digested. And it is hard to explain. And when he says that, he doesn't mean, well, it's hard to explain because you have to mine down deep to get to the gold. He says it's hard to explain because, because you're dull of hearing. You've become slothful. You've become lazy, sluggish, hard of hearing, slow to understand, slow to respond spiritually. This has nothing to do with their intellectual capacity. This has nothing to do with how much theology they know. It has nothing to do with how smart they are. It has everything to do with their heart before God, that they've become dull, 
They become lazy. They become indifferent toward him, though they never, ever stopped performing their religious duties. And even more than that, they never, ever stopped trying to be biblical. But yet they were dull of hearing. You see, here's what's going on. Originally, these, these Jewish Christians, these Hebrews that, that the author's writing to, were zealous for God. They loved Jesus. They were bold in sharing the gospel. They were eager to learn from God's word. They loved one another deeply. And then persecution broke out. And at first, they were still bold and zealous. They visited their brothers and sisters who were in prison They joyfully accepted the plundering of their property because they knew that they had a better possession in heaven. But as the hostilities and as the hardships continued, they began to be shaken. They stopped showing the same compassion towards their brothers and sisters in prison and then towards one another. They stopped evangelizing the lost for fear. They began to turn inward and and focus on themselves, on their safety, on their comfort, on their wants. It wasn't about Christ and his mission. They'd made it all about them. And in the midst of that suffering, what they really, really wanted from God was relief. And so they were going to extremes to try to gain that. They grew weary. And however subtly, they began to question their faith in Jesus. Now they had not abandoned Jesus Christ, but instead they began to turn backward. They were trying to continue to worship God. They were even trying to be biblical about it because the Bible has a lot devoted to Jewish practices. But they got to looking out at their Jewish friends and they saw their Jewish friends weren't being persecuted because Judaism was culturally accepted where Christianity was not. And so they thought, well, you know, maybe if we take a step backward, we can play it safe. We can hedge our bets. We can take care of ourselves. And as long as it's in the category of being biblical, of being right, then God will surely fill the gaps according to his promises. But the author of Hebrews says, no. No, you've become dull of hearing. I wonder how many of us are doing that. I wonder how many are playing it safe. How many are just doing this Christianity thing in order to hedge their bets? How many will worship Jesus as long as it is comfortable, as long as it's culturally acceptable, or when it happens to be convenient? I wonder how many of us function with this subtle belief that as long as I perform acts of worship, as long as it's in the realm of biblical, 
then I'm okay. I wonder just how many of us are dull of hearing this morning. Maybe you wonder, is he talking about me? Have I become dull of hearing? Or, or, or maybe you're unsure about the severity of the diagnosis, but perhaps you can more clearly identify the symptoms. Right? We've already seen some of them. Right? The author is saying that the high priesthood of Christ is essential for missional and moral maturity, but yet you have little tolerance to hear what he has to say. You could care less or you do not see the point. Perhaps you find it difficult to understand and you have little patience to learn. Maybe you tune out or you have a tendency to fall asleep during sermons. And quite honestly, you find the Word of God boring. He says in chapter uh, 5, verse 12 there, by this time you ought to be teachers. Now he doesn't mean that everybody ought to be pastors or everybody ought to be seminary professors or, or things like that. But disciples of Jesus who make disciples and who help build one another up in the Word. But when you gather as a church, you come honestly to consume and not to give. You don't invest yourself in the growth of others. You're content to be discipled, to be poured into, but you're unwilling or unprepared to disciple others. And when an opportunity does arise for you to speak the truth in love to someone, you don't have a clue how to encourage them from God's word. Maybe, maybe you're still trying to grasp the basics of the Christian faith, that you still need milk. And that's perfectly fine if you're young in the faith. But when a grown adult is sucking on a bottle, we don't tend to view that very well, do we? Because we shouldn't. Maybe you realize that you have little hunger for meat, for the deeper things of God. Instead, you're quite content to just snack a little on the sweetest drops of God's Word when it suits you, when it fits your preferences, just so long as it's easy to digest. Maybe you're unskilled in the, the Word or the message of righteousness that it talks about there, still struggling to grasp where it is that your righteousness actually comes from and how Christ's perfect righteousness for you, strengthens you, and equips you to serve as a priest to one another. Or, or, or maybe you lack discernment because you don't really know God's heart. You haven't really been trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And this goes far deeper than, well, you know, I know I shouldn't murder, but to, because of Jesus, actually know how to love the murderer. And we see in chapter 6, verse, verses 1 and 2, that the spiritually, spiritual maturity does also include right doctrine, right? Not, not just the bare minimum, the elementary doctrines, but the deeper truths about God. And he doesn't want us just to maintain the same basic faith that we had at the beginning, at the first, but to go on to maturity, all of these things and more are symptoms of spiritual immaturity, where there is little to no desire to grow in Christ. All of these are that throbbing that ought to wake us up to the fact that we have a problem, that we're dull of hearing. 
But dullness of hearing and spiritual immaturity are not God's intention for his children. He has purposed that we listen, that we hear, that we proclaim, that we teach one another, that we become more skilled, more discerning, more faithful, that we go on to maturity in Christ. Though we start out as babes in the faith and we need that pure spiritual milk, we need that foundation, we need those elementary doctrines, they're all good and necessary gifts of God. He did not intend for any of us to stay there. And he certainly doesn't want us to become dull of hearing. He has purposed you for more than that. Not minimums, not coasting, not complacency. He has purposed that you grow, that we grow together to maturity, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And no matter how old you are, or how long you've been a Christian, or even whether or not you would consider yourself to be a Christian, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, we all have a ways to go. Not one of us have arrived. None of us have reached maturity. We still have a dullness of hearing that needs to be overcome. We still, in one way or another, are spiritually immature. And so how then? How is this dullness and immaturity overcome? Well, dullness and immaturity are overcome second by feasting on God's word. When I I say feasting, I, I don't mean that you keep a consistent daily Bible reading plan or that you study Scripture. Those are all good and right, helpful, so that we might know and love God more. But I mean having a hunger and an ability to find nourishment and satisfaction from God's Word. Or as the author here puts it, having the ability to hear, to feed off of, and to grow in God. This is far more than a placid religious exercise. It is dynamic and it is life-giving. It is a hunger and a feasting that nourishes the soul and that enables a person to grow in Christ. And friends, Hebrews, perhaps more than any other book, focuses of the Bible focuses on the living activity of God's word in the life towards the ears and the hearts and and the, the spiritual stomach of the believer. He says right there at the very beginning in chapter one, verse one, that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Not that we're kind of reading about what God happened to speak to people once upon a time. But that when we come to the Word of God, God speaks. God speaks to us. God speaks to us by His Son. And He goes out through the rest of chapter 1. And over and over again, he says, look, God says from this passage about Jesus, and God says from this passage about Jesus, and God says from this passage about Jesus. And so what we're told here is that God didn't just speak once upon a time, but that God is speaking to us by and about his son. 
In chapter 3, the author said, both to his original audience as well as us, just as David said to his original audience in Psalm 95, just as Moses said to the Israelites in Numbers 20, that today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today, God is speaking to you. In this moment, hear him as he speaks to you. Listen to his voice. Do not harden your hearts. This is living. This is active. It's dynamic. In chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, we saw that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the divisions of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And that living and active word of God that he is speaking to us actually performs surgery in this moment on our souls. And here we see that not only is God speaking for our hearing, but that God speaks in order to feed us deeply with his word so that we might go on to maturity. There's no life, there's no growth without the word of God. In verse 12 there, chapter 5 verse 12, he refers to God's word as oracles, as utterances, as sayings, as a message that comes directly from the mouth of God. That's what that word means. As both Moses and Jesus said, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so it's fitting that the author of Hebrews uses a similar analogy of milk and solid food. That this is to be our deepest hunger. This is to be our most necessary nourishment. We don't treat the milk of God's word like some lactose intolerant kid that hates milk, but his mom forces him to drink a cup every so often in order to build up an immunity to it. Now we should approach it like a baby longing for milk. I mean, what does a baby do when it's hungry? cries out, right? There's this begging and pleading because that baby in that moment knows its greatest need and it will not stop until you put something in its mouth. And when you do, when that baby latches on, good luck trying to get that baby to focus on anything else, right? You bring its favorite rattle there and you shake it, nothing, right? Favorite stuffed animal, oh, look at this over here. Not a clue. It does not matter because that baby has one mission in that moment. To feed. To drink deeply. And he or she will not stop until they are done. But when you get older, you need more than just milk. Not that you move beyond it and will never drink milk again. No, I mean, we, we put milk in lots of things. You know, drink milk, milk does the body good, all that kind of stuff. But, but as they grow to maturity, they need more nourishment than eight ounces of, of milk from a bottle can provide. I mean, for my 14-year-old son, Layden, eight ounces of milk is little more than a palate cleanser between courses. 
Right? I mean, it's a lubricant for this never-ceasing food disposal that is his stomach. But we develop appetites for other things, don't we? We hunger for other things more than God so that when, when we do come to God's word, we only want milk rather than solid food because let's face it, milk tastes more like ice cream and candy than vegetables and steak do. As much as we would love a diet consisting of ice cream and candy, we know that that's not good for us. In order to grow to maturity in Christ, we need the solid food of God's word. Solid food that goes beyond those basic principles of the oracles of God. Solid food that apparently includes the fact that Jesus was designated to be a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, right? We are to not only know that, but actually be able to teach that to others. That's how important that is. Solid food that chapter 6, verse 12 says goes beyond the elementary doctrine of Christ, beyond the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instruction about washing and the laying on of hands, or the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now let me just ask you right here, how proficient are you in understanding and being able to articulate those doctrines? All right, anybody want to write a thesis on like washings or... Laying on of hands? Maturity requires more than those things. More than turning away from our tendency to try to save ourselves through our good works. Those things are dead. More than simply having faith in God. More than instruction about washings, both the Old Testament purification rituals that pointed to the purification that we can only receive in Jesus and baptism upon our profession of faith in his purifying work. More than instructions regarding the laying on of hands, either to receive the Holy Spirit or to be set apart for ministry. More than instruction regarding the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment on the day of the Lord. We need more than these things that served as bridges in opening the door to the gospel of Jesus Christ to Jews who held to some basic foundation of each of those. Right? The author mentions this because this is kind of the, the four spiritual laws or the, the Roman road or the four fields training of how to share the gospel with the Jew. Right? It's this common ground to start from. These were common, agreed upon foundations that they could build off of to share the truth and beauty of Jesus. So don't just go back to the basics, to the lowest common denominator that everybody can agree upon. Let's not be ecumenical here and find, you know, what can everybody just all ascribe to? We believe in God. Yay, then we're all good. No, you've got to go deeper into God's word to grow to maturity in Jesus. You've got to feed deeply on it. Dullness of hearing and spiritual immaturity can be overcome by feasting. By first going back and learning again those basic principles of the oracles of God, verse 12, drinking deeply of the pure spiritual milk of the word until you are ready to savor more solid food. But the goal is there in chapter 6 
to leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and to go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of core truths that both Jew and Christian could agree at some level on, but to go deeply by feasting on God's word so that your soul is nourished as God speaks to you from all his scripture of the glory of his son. And this maturity that the author is exhorting us to is not about age or information. But true Christian maturity is both missional and moral, focused both on kingdom growth and on godliness. The mission is right there in verse 12. By this time, you ought to be teachers. Being a Christian is not about doing just enough to make sure that you are saved. Being a Christian is about seeking the glory of Christ in salvation for all of those who throughout the world God has appointed to for salvation. It's not enough that you have been taught, that you know some things that you can share within the safety of your Christian bubble. A mature Christian teaches, not as a seminary professor or as a pastor. This is not just for those few who have the gift of teaching, because why? He's saying this to Jewish Christians. He's saying this to these Hebrews, not just of one church, but of many churches, and saying, y'all ought to be teachers by now. By this time, you ought to be disciples who can make disciples. You have heard enough. You know enough. You have fed enough that you can begin reproducing yourself in others. Redeemer, by now, you ought to be teachers. And you can be. You know, we've built a lot into this church to enable you to both feed deeply and to be trained. It's part of our commitment. We're going to continue to do that in one way or another. We've got foundations courses. We've got the preaching lab. We've got internships. We model through apprenticeship. We, we mentor. And the point of all of that was not simply so that you can know more or to get a little bit of practice in a safe environment for it to end right there but so that you could reproduce yourself and others. We've done all of this to feed and to train so that you might be able to teach others also. And you can. God has gifted and equipped you to do what he has called you to do. He will. He promises that that is the case. Do we need wisdom in how to do that? We need the help of the church to, to identify callings and passions and all of that and ways that we can, platforms that we can utilize that and put that into practice. But, but the fact remains that every single one of us have this opportunity, have this privilege and this responsibility to take the things that we have seen and heard in the presence of many witnesses and to teach others also. 
who would be able to teach others also. And on and on it goes. Even right now, David is working hard on a reproducible strategy for discipleship so that you can be trained to help uh, you in, in being a disciple maker that, that God has called you to be. And, and I would encourage you guys to think deeply about that. I would encourage you to go and have a conversation with David about when these trainings are, are going to be held and how you can participate in that. God has called you to maturity in Christ. And half of that maturity, according to this passage, is mission. The other half is godliness. Godliness that is skilled in the word of righteousness. All right, you know where your righteousness comes from and you know how to live in light of it because you've learned through experience. You've put it into practice time and time again. The mature are discerning, not because they have a higher education, but because they have been trained through constant and consistent and sacrificial practice to distinguish good from evil. That word train there is where we get our word gymnasium. Right? It's training like that of an athlete, constantly training, constantly working, constantly striving, constantly sweating, constantly pouring yourself out. True morality, true godliness, true maturity requires sweat equity. Not simply stating what is right or wrong, but knowing how to rightly apply it because you have labored diligently in it. And that can be true for anyone. For anyone. You know, Charles Spurgeon, prince of preachers, probably one of the most influential pastors in the history of the church, used to talk about his greatest teacher, the one who taught him the most theology, the one who exuded maturity, both in mission and in morality, in kingdom growth and in godliness. And you know what? It was never a pastor that he mentioned. It was not a professor or a teacher that he had. It was an uneducated lunch lady at his school named Mary King. Her maturity was palpable as she on mission, both exuded godliness in her life and taught him at the lunch table of the glorious doctrine of Jesus Christ. That uneducated lunch lady taught him more of life and doctrine than anyone else because she fed deeply on God's word and her maturity overflowed in both godliness and kingdom growth. And may the same be true for us. Perhaps the Lord, in his mercy, would use us as a merry king to raise up many Spurgeons who would be able to teach others from God's word. Now, before we, we leave this passage, we need to focus our attention on chapter 6, verse 3. Because dullness and immaturity are overcome by feasting on God's word in accordance with God's will. Now, so far, we've clearly seen our responsibility 
right? We are responsible for our dullness of hearing and spiritual immaturity. We need to be taught again. We need to feed on God's word. We are to become skilled in the word of righteousness, trained in discernment through constant practice to distinguish good from evil. We are to move beyond elementary doctrine toward maturity in Christ. Verse three, and this we will do if God permits. We have the responsibility not to stagnate or to backslide, but to press on to maturity, both in mission and in godliness. And if you are in Christ, that is your objective. That's what we are to give ourselves to. And we are to do this. But don't think for a second that we are the one who does it. We can only do as long as God permits. We've already seen this back in chapter 2, verse 10 and following, that God is the one who brings many sons and daughters to glory. We don't do that. That Jesus is the one who sanctifies us. We don't sanctify ourselves. That Jesus is the one that is building this house for God, these sons and daughters from all over the world, bringing them in to his house as he is the only source and foundation of our eternal salvation. We don't do that. We can't do that. It's the work of God. And so though we have been called to maturity and it's our responsibility to hear and to grow, we must not deceive ourselves into thinking that we can do it. That if I just receive enough teaching, or if I just teach enough, I can make myself and others mature. Because we can only do so as God permits. And if God does not permit, all of our labor is in vain. No, we must hear the word, but God provides the growth. Now, some people dislike the notion of God's sovereignty and salvation. But everywhere in Scripture, it is presented as a comfort that draws us into deeper dependence upon God and a reason to praise His name. Even in this passage, it is one of two key sections for our understanding this warning that motivates us to lean in on him. Basically, if you don't get this verse and you don't get verses 9 through 12, guess what's going to happen? You're going to get... Verses 4 through 8, wrong. But the sovereign grace of God and salvation is everywhere. I mean, just, just take this list of foundational doctrines that he presents there in verses 1 and 2. Right? Every one of them are the result of God's work, not ours. Right? Every one of us are called to repent of our dead works. But whose work is it that makes it effective? Because Acts chapter 11 and, and 2 Timothy chapter 2 says that God is the one that has to grant repentance, right? Basically, you won't repent until God first does a work. And even if, say, in our deadness, our spiritual deadness, we were hypothetically able to bring ourselves to a place of repentance where we, in, on humbled and bowed knee, would, would cry out to God to turn away from our dead works. 
does that obligate God to forgive us? No. And so even the application of that repentance, even the forgiveness that is given is not necessitated because we did an act, but because God works. What about faith in God? We're all called to believe upon Jesus' name and be saved. But the first half of the book of Ephesians gives us three chapters to see how faith is a gift of God. We were saved by grace through faith, and this is not of our doing. It is the gift of God. Instruction on washings. What did the Old Testament purification rituals and baptism in Jesus' name actually represent? The need to be made pure and the plea to God in faith that he would do so. But did the washings, did the baptism actually purify our hearts? No. God does. God must create in us a clean heart. God must wash us with regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. God must bury us with Christ in baptism. We don't do that. What about the laying on of hands that represent either the reception of the Holy Spirit or being set apart for ministry? I mean, don't get me wrong, as much as I would love to be go around touching people so that they could receive the Holy Spirit right, and become saved, that would be an easy way to do evangelism, right? Just going through the mall, kind of boop, 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 you know? But that's not the way it works. God must impart, God must give, God must seal you with the Holy Spirit. You don't do that. And as much as you may have a desire or competencies for ministry, we see time and time again that God is the one that calls, that God is the one that's set apart, that God is the one who gifts the church with leaders. We can't raise the dead to life. And in eternal judgment, we have no power either to condemn or to acquit. God does all of that. And so though we have the responsibility to know and to make known the gospel, though we are called to hear, called to believe, called to pursue godliness and to teach it to others, all of it will be only if God permits. But here's the great comfort in it all. If you're here this morning and you are seeing your sin, that you're sitting there in your seat and you are acknowledging, you know what, I have been dull of hearing. That is the work of God. If you find yourself longing to live by faith and to actively feed upon God's word, that's evidence that God is at work in you. If you find yourself desiring to know him more, to become more like Jesus, if you are encouraged to teach others about him, this is the work of God. If you realize that you've been coasting on the basics, but you long to press on towards maturity in Christ, that is God working. And this 
you will do because God is permitting it. Because God is permitting it. If it's happening in your heart, if it's happening in your life, no, you're not there. No one's arrived, right? But it's there in your heart. There's that desire. There's that longing. There's that hunger. I want to take steps on this. That is the work of God. God is permitting that. Take comfort in it. This is not you making a decision for Jesus. This is God doing a work in you. And we can praise him for that. And so let your hope, let your faith, let your assurance not be in your labor to fulfill your responsibility, but in his good and sovereign grace that is at work in you. Let's not be dull of hearing. Let's not persist in immaturity because dullness and immaturity have been overcome by feasting on his word in accordance with his will. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that our eyes and ears would be open this morning to be able to see your hand and to hear your voice. I pray that we would be encouraged and motivated from your word to respond in pursuing the call that you have given each of us to know and love Jesus, to become more like him, and to tell others of the glory of his name. God, I pray that you would create in us an appetite for your word, for the good things you have given us. I pray that it would result in a distaste in our mouths for all of those other things that we so tend to hunger for that we might find ourselves satisfied, that we might enjoy Jesus more. Father, we know that You've called us to this, but apart from your grace, we can do nothing. So we ask in faith, knowing that it's only by your power at work in us that our wandering hearts will no longer tarry, but find our joy and satisfaction in Jesus. May it be so for all of us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.